Welcome to Calvary Albuquerque. We pursue the God who is passionately pursuing a lost world. We do this with one another. Through worship, by the word, to the world. Tonight we're going to talk about why Sodom matters. But before we jump into that, I want to go into uh, a little bit of, rev- of a review. Um, how many of you, I, I, I know some of you have, because I recognize a lot of faces, how many of you have heard me do a past presentation on Sodom? Good. How many have not? Okay, it's a little more, a few more knots than haves. So um, for you, for you folks who have not, I'm going to do a little bit of a quick review. We're just going to kind of walk through it and and uh, enjoy it together. So um, let me get to the first slide here. This is the one you really need. This one, digsodom.com. That's easy to remember, isn't it? It's really talelhamam.com, but nobody can ever remember that, so we use this one. It's a little easier. Digsodom.com, that gets you to the website. Website's a little squirrely right now because they're working on it. We're having to update it with a lot of new stuff, so if some things and features on there don't work, don't worry. Uh, give it a few weeks and it'll be ready. Um, the next one uh, you need as well. This will get you on the update list. We do an update list. Uh, an update every month, twice a month, four times a month during the year. But during the excavation, during the eight weeks of the excavation, we send out uh, um, some photos, what's happening on the dig that day. And we do it every single day with a little bit of commentary. So you can follow the excavation at Sodom um, moment by moment, literally, uh, through the entire excavation season. That's a lot of fun. So if you'll just... um, your smartphone or your stupid phone will do it. Just text 22828 and uh, follow the instructions. Put in your email address. That will put you on the email update list. If you don't have a copy of this, you need one. You can order it on Amazon. It is available now in paperback. You can still get the hardback version of it. I think maybe uh, they have some in uh, the bookstore here at Parchments. Uh, if you can't get that, you can uh, get a hold of us at Trinity Southwest University. That's 505-33-BIBLE, and we can hook you up with a copy of that. It's one of the the best books you'll ever read on biblical archaeology because it's understandable. It walks you step by step by step through the archaeological process and uh, is very exciting to do that. Um, the next one. There we go. All right. We're going to do a little bit of a review because, frankly, what you really need in your life, and I always bring this up when I speak, is that when a lull comes to your life or things get a little samey, things get a little monotonous, what you really, really need is a geographical fix. You need some geography in your life. And so tonight we're going to do a little bit of geography because if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, 
as uh, in terms of the location of biblical Sodom, then you need to get up to speed on that. And then we're going to walk you into some new discoveries. I want to show you some interesting things, and I want to take you a little bit beyond biblical Sodom to a couple of other uh, discoveries that we've made in the same area that are very important. By the way, we're entering into our 12th dig season in 2017. Wow, it doesn't seem quite that long. Uh, it's been a long haul. We've gotten a lot older, a lot balder. Uh, a lot of things happen in, in 12 years. But um, it's been very exciting, and it's been exciting to have Calvary Chapel Albuquerque with us for the, for the whole ride on this thing. Well, why is, it, why is Sodom important? One of the reasons why Sodom is important is because there are a lot of scholars, a lot of people in the world who would love to get rid of this, who would love to dismiss this as a collection of myths and legends that can't be trusted, something that has no value for the modern world. We're in a battle for the Bible. And in this battle for the Bible, there are some things that, some places, some issues on which we need to fight back. And biblical archaeology uh, can take us there on some of these issues. And this is one of them. So the existence of Sodom and the cities of the plain is a good test case for the historical accuracy of the Bible for at least three reasons. One, most scholars doubt that Sodom and Gomorrah ever existed. They completely dismiss the story out of hand. Second, those who do believe that Sodom and Gomorrah existed, the more conservative Bible scholars, have generally searched in vain on the wrong end of the Dead Sea, on the south end of the Dead Sea, and have never found anything that scholars could remotely have confidence in as biblical Sodom. This reinforces the position of the skeptics. So if you, if you have the wrong idea about where Sodom is located and you insist on it and we go and look there and find nothing, that gives fuel to the debate on the side of the skeptics because there's nothing there to support that view. So since that's been the traditional view all along, scholars have just dismissed the Bible at that point. And by the way, after its destruction, Sodom became a metaphor throughout the rest of Scripture for the wrath of God, for the judgment of God, for the wrath of God. It goes throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. It goes throughout the remainder of the New Testament. It's found in all the Gospels. It's found in the Apostle Paul. It's found in... Peter, Second Peter, it's found in the book of Jude, and it's also referred to in the book of Revelation. So Sodom becomes a very consistent historical metaphor for the wrath of God and the fact that God's statements of judgment, I almost said threats, God doesn't make threats. When God decrees judgment, It will happen. It will happen in his time and in his way 
but it will happen. So, um, if we could get it in the right place and prove that it, it actually exists, that would help this situation. Well, there's a third reason. If a legitimate scientific excavation could find the cities of the plain and biblical Sodom amongst them, it would be a huge confirmation of the historicity of the Bible. And so I think these are three good reasons. In fact, I had someone recently come up to me and say, you know, I became a Christian because I heard what you said about Sodom and I went and I read some of your uh, books and I checked it out and I came to believe in the Bible. So it can have impact. And so this is not just a... uh, uh, just a, a fun exercise. This is just not something that we do because we like it or we're interested in it. The bottom line is, if Sodom is real, and we can demonstrate that it was destroyed in a in a manner as the Bible describes it, then we have a very good reason to take the Bible seriously and to take God seriously. All right? So there are some there are some impacts to this. Well, in about twelve years of doing this, we think we've finally set the record straight, and it does take a while. By the way, it takes between thirty and forty years for archaeological discoveries to find their way into the biblical commentaries and literature. So uh, some people keep reminding me that by the time this process plays out, I will be with Jesus. <laughs> if, the, if, he, if he hasn't come back for the rest of everybody, uh, then uh, and the world is still continuing on, uh, um, there's there's to be a lot of work to do. So. Uh, it takes a long time to do this. Archaeology is a very slow process. It's a painstaking process. It's a very uh, uh, tedious kind of thing. And um, it's taken a while. But we think we've uh, finally got it. But there are some minimalists. And I always have to introduce this gentleman because uh, he has been my minimalist nemesis over the years. Um, He once said and continues to say about me, no responsible scholar goes out with a trowel in one hand and a Bible in the other. Okay, But um, I have to uh, say this in in response. No responsible scholar digging in the Holy Land can go out without a trowel in one hand and a Bible in the other. The reason being, yeah, the reason is simply because there is still no better historical and geographical text from the ancient world than this. There just isn't. And so you have to give this thing its due, whether you want to believe everything in it or not. You still have to use it. Now, how do you go about finding a lost city like Sodom? Well, it's fairly easy. It's fairly straightforward. Uh, It would sort of be... Um, if there was an alleged place called Santa Fe and there was no sign to it and there were, 
And nobody knew where it was exactly except descriptions that somehow it hung out between Albuquerque and the Colorado border, off a little bit to the northeast, about maybe an hour's drive away. I suppose you might be able to find it. If you follow the directions, you could probably get there, even if you didn't have a map with names. And that's how it is with a lot of Bible locations. They they have a lot of geographical data embedded in the text. They'll say, well, it's near this river, it's near this mountain, it's east of this city. And if you triangulate around, you can generally identify where these places are. And this is how locations get on Bible maps. But there are three things you have to consider. The right place. If, you, if the Bible says it's in a particular location, then you go to that location. So you've got to be in the right place. The other thing is you've got to be in the right time frame because if Abraham lives in the Bronze Age and, this, and you find a location that has Hellenistic or Roman ruins but nothing from the Bronze Age, then it doesn't qualify. So it has to have the right time frame for the biblical story involved. It also has to have the right stuff. By the right stuff, we simply mean that if there are descriptions about that city, then we need to check out in the archaeology whether those descriptions match what's found in the ground. And when those three things, the right place, the right time, the right stuff, when they line up, we can be fairly sure that we've got the right location that we have actually found a city in the Bible that has been lost for a long, long time. Now, the right place means we look at the geography of the cities of the plain. So let's do that. There's a a particular passage that we always have to turn to, uh, and that's Genesis 13. Why Genesis 13? Because it's the only passage in the Bible that has been specifically written to take us to the city of Sodom. Okay? The only one. There are others that talk about it, talk about Sodom, various things about it, various events. But this is the only one that will get us the road map, so to speak. So let's read it. I've cut out almost everything here except the geography. So let's just work our way through it. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev and Lot went with him. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the Garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, toward Zoar. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now there's a whole lot of data there, but it's going to center around a particular word translated plain ten times in the overall Sodom story, uh, three times in this particular passage. The word plain is found in the phrase cities of the plain, and you'll see that here. The plain of the Jordan. But what does this mean? By the way, it is not the standard Hebrew word for plain, valley, flat place, bottom land, and so forth. There are plenty of words for that. 
But this is not it. It it is a different word altogether. It's the word kikar. Now the word, by the way, the word kikar uh, is used in the modern world. If you go to Jerusalem and you find roundabouts, we're starting to get a few roundabouts. You like roundabouts? A lot of people don't like roundabouts. I don't know. I love roundabouts. Because if you forgot where you were going to go, you just keep going around and... (laughs) Until you find out which direction you need to take off. So I kind of like that. Um, But the word kikar, it means a circle. And so if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to find kikar this, traffic circle, Moshe, right? Traffic circle, Elijah. I don't know if that one exists. But you'll find traffic circles that are just called kikar. Um, That's what it means. Uh, in the Old Testament, it mostly refers to a talent of metal, a flat circular disc of metal, or a pita bread, a tortilla, in essence. All right? So talents or tortillas, that's what it means. In fact, outside the Bible, this word is used a lot, but it never, ever has a geographical meaning at all. It only means talents or tortillas. There is a little meaning in it in the Egyptian language, the word kirker, which means to draw a circle in the sand with a stick. But kikar just basically means a circle, basically a talent or a tortilla. Now, here it is. The Jordan Valley, this is the southern part of it, ends at the north end of the Dead Sea. So here you see the Dead Sea. Here you see, uh, highlighted in green, the narrow Jordan Valley coming down and then widening out in a large uh, expanse, about 30 kilometers wide, as it enters the north end of the Dead Sea. So this is the Kikar. This is the circle of the Jordan. And this is the only possible place this could be because the Bible tells us very clearly that Hakikar of Hayarden, the Kikar of the Jordan, ends at the Bay of the Dead Sea, at the mouth of the Jordan below Pisgah, which is Nebo. So all of that's happening north of the Dead Sea. And so you can see it all here, the Jordan River, the Kikar, the mouth of the Jordan, and Pisgah, all of that from the biblical formula for the location of the termination of the Jordan Valley, which terminates at the Kikar. And so this is the only possible location for the cities of the plain, including Sodom. The the Bible also says, uh, in a very astute observation, that the Kikar was well watered, first of all, like the Garden of, of the Lord, the Garden of Yahweh. How was the Garden of Eden watered? If you go back and read that passage, uh, Genesis 2, about the Garden of Eden, it says a river ran through it. And then it broke into four channels outside the garden. But in the garden, it was simply a single river running through the garden. And that's exactly how the Jordan River runs through the Kikar. A single river goes right down through the middle of it. But it's also watered like Egypt. How was Egypt watered? Egypt almost never got rain. In fact, a thunderstorm in Egypt was seen as a bad omen. Egypt was watered by the Nile River, which overflowed its banks in the delta next to the uh, Mediterranean in the north, overflowed its banks, covered the land, and they would then plant 
in the in the silt left by the receding waters. And so that kind of hydrologic situation drove Nilotic civilization for 3,000 years. Sometimes it was better than others, but uh, it allowed the Egyptians to build a great civilization because water was hardly ever a problem. So the Jordan River is exactly the same. It's like a Nile in miniature. And Moses, who basically is putting this passage together, grew up where? Egypt. So he would have immediately recognized, as he was camped uh, in the area right before they crossed the Jordan, and he finished up his writings of the Torah books, and particularly the book of Deuteronomy, right there. Uh, By the way, in a little bit I'm going to show you the chair that I think Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy on. Just kidding. No, but it could be. (laughs) It could be. Um, But he's there, right? And he he knows this phenomenon he sees the river overflowing in the springtime and says, wow, you know, that, that's just like the Nile. And so he writes it up. It was watered like Egypt. And so it was a, a good observation. Now, um, here it is. That's a little bit of the overflowing of the Nile and the Kikar and all the uh, rivers that feed into the valley. And there's Jericho on the west side. Now, on the west side... Have anybody been to Jericho? Jericho exists because there's a spring there. And it's the only city that really ever grew up on that side of the river because there's one spring. It's enough for one city, not for two or three. So it was very sparse, a good living for one city, but not for many. But on the east side of the Jordan, it's a different situation altogether. There are numerous springs on that side. Plus, there are several perennial rivers that run in uh, on that side as well. So water just uh, is hardly ever a problem on the other side. It's the best watered agriscape in the region. When everybody else, through the history of the region, suffers famine and drought, this location, the people in this location, survive and thrive when others are struggling or dying completely. So it's an important area. The Bible also says that Lot could see the whole area of the Kikar from Bethel and I. Remember it said he was standing at Bethel and I and he looked over, he saw the whole circle of the Jordan. Well, where was he? Here's where he was standing. Oh, by the way, that's the traditional sites of Sodom and Gomorrah in the south. Here's Bethel and I where Lot was standing. And you have to ask that question. Where was he standing when he saw what he saw? Could he have possibly seen the southern sites? No, because it's completely blocked by the hills. You cannot see in that direction. What you can see from Bethel and I, and we excavated at, at I for six years, that's what you can see. You can see the Kikar. And if you get over close enough to the edge of the scarp, you can see the entire thing, including Jericho. So that's what he saw. So Lot traveled eastward then, according to Genesis 13. Here's I, here's eastward, and voila. doesn't say he took a right-hand turn. He stayed north of the Dead Sea. So this is the way it shakes out. Lot looked that direction, therefore, and he went that direction, 
And Sodom can therefore only be in that particular location in the Kikar of the Jordan, north of the Dead Sea, and that's the geography. It cannot be in the Dead Sea region proper. All right. So, it's a lock. Then we have the chronology of the cities of the plain. This is pretty easy. We can go through this really quick. Abraham belongs to what we commonly call the Middle Bronze Age. It's the height of Canaanite civilization. During the Middle Bronze Age, the great cities, the great walled cities of Canaan that were eventually seen by Joshua, remember, said, oh, we can't go in there. These cities are walled up to the heavens. Those great cities came to be uh, during the time of Abraham, during the Middle Bronze Age. And... So the middle, the early Bronze Age is there, the Middle Bronze Age is there. Abraham and Lot belong there. But Genesis 10 also talks about Sodom and the cities of the plain. Genesis 10 takes us back to the beginning of the building of great walled cities. And we know when that happened archaeologically. It happened during the early Bronze Age. And so Sodom then spans the time from Abraham and Lot all the way back to Genesis 10. So if we're going to find the Sodom of the Bible, we are going to find it in a period that spans those periods, early bronze, intermediate, and middle bronze age. That's the proper time frame for Sodom. Well, um, interestingly enough, Jericho occupies that, and if you, uh, all these little uh, yellow lines represent the... Uh, roads and, and uh, trade routes of the area. On the other side of the river, there actually happened to be a whole lot of little towns and cities, one big one in particular. They all have names, and the big one sitting at the major intersection is Tal al-Hammam, what we've been excavating for 12 years, the site that we believe is biblical Sodom. And every single one of these sites has the Bronze Age profile that could qualify it as being part of the cities of the plain. So um, not only did we find Sodom, we believe, but also many, many others that can be Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and any other smaller cities that were associated as satellites. So here's Tal el-Hammam, and uh, we're looking from the hills to the east over to the west, and just catching to the left there, the north end of the Dead Sea. And... Um, it is overspread by a large early Bronze Age settlement and the intermediate Bronze Age. And then the time of Abraham, there is a large walled city there. And it is quite large. How big is it? In the same period, remember a fellow by the name of Melchizedek? Melchizedek was hanging out with Abraham at a time after Abraham had chased after the kings, remember, they had sacked Sodom, taken Lot, his nephew, captive, and he went after them, got him, uh, uh, defeated the uh, Keterleomer, brought the spoils back, and the king of Sodom wanted to, wanted to pay him. He said, no, no, no. Uh, and then the king, interesting, the king of Sodom and uh, Abraham went over to Jerusalem, to the Valley of the Kings, and met with Melchizedek. Melchizedek had a city. That city was Salem or Jerusalem. How big was Jerusalem in the time of Abraham, in the time of Melchizedek? It was about 10 acres. How big was Jerusalem, say, later in the time of King David? Same, about 10 acres. 
It got a little bit bigger under King Solomon, but Jerusalem was always a, a rather small city. In comparison, the city of Sodom, King Bera's town, was 62 acres inside the city wall, not including a lot of the city that lay and villages that lay right in the shadow of it outside the city wall. So it was really, really big in comparison to most, if, if not all, of the other cities in the region. So uh, it's a, a large concern and um, was probably the dominant socio-political force in the region. Now, what's the right stuff? The archaeology of the cities of the plan. I want to focus on one little quick thing here. It's fortified. Do you remember in Genesis 19.1, it says, Lot sat in the gateway of Sodom. Remember that? Lot sat in the gateway of Sodom. Well, if you have a gateway, you have a wall, because that's what you use a gate for, to get through the fortifications and get inside the city. So sitting in the gate indicates that the city was fortified. Uh, this next slide, um, my assistant director on the Tal Hamam excavation project, Gary Byers, and I standing a few years ago on top of the early Bronze Age city wall. That wall is 2.2 uh, miles long. It is 18 feet thick and was probably about 40 feet high uh, in its heyday. So it's huge fortification walls. This is Danette and I... Um, standing atop the Middle Bronze Age rampart system, the upper city is separately fortified inside the lower city. So you have a big wall on the outside, a smaller fortification on the inside, but still very substantial. And it took somewhere uh, between between 60 and 100 million mud bricks to build the rampart systems at Tal Hamam. Everybody else built built theirs out of packed earth. They just piled up the dirt in big berms. But... The people of Sodom built all of their fortifications, including their defensive ramparts, out of mud bricks. Amazing. Nobody else did that. It's the only city where that's found. Um, It's really incredible. So here's the southern defenses. So there's the early Bronze Age city wall, and then later they refurbished it, and they gave us some new towers on the outside, and the the red color here gives us the middle Bronze Age city wall. That's the one that was there in the time of Abraham, and there's an entrance to the wall. And then we have a reconstruction of the middle Bronze Age gateway system. This, This came to light about four years ago. And I shared that with you. I'm going to show you an updated version of that. We discovered um, a couple of years ago that it had a pillared gatehouse. And I mentioned that before, but I'm I'm going to bring it back up. This is the configuration. It's completely different than any Bronze Age gatehouse ever discovered in, in this part of the world. We think it's because the people who early on settled at... Sodom, what became the city of Sodom, were originally, many of them, from the island of Crete. They were part of the Minoan civilization of Crete. And uh, if you study the Cretan civilization, you begin to understand that they had a an interesting, unique kind of uh, culture to uh, raise young boys and... Uh, it, 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 and I've talked about this before, and I really don't like talking about it, but um, it was a, 
homosexual arrangement where uh, older men uh, took for a period of several years a younger, uh, starting at 12 years old, a 12-year-old boy, and mentored him for about 10 years, uh, including uh, all the physical activity that goes with that. Um, And this became the warrior culture of the Middle East, by the way. And uh, this kind of culture was spread, spread to Sodom, and it probably has something to do with how the Sodomites reacted to the young men, the angels who came to visit Lot to warn him of the destruction of the city. And so there's all kinds of little connections going on here. And um, so this ties us to the Minoan culture. This is how the Minoans built their buildings. Um, uh, and interesting, do you see as you go in this, if you ran in the gate and weren't paying attention, what would you run into? There's a pillar right smack in the central access of the gatehouse as you come in the gate. Uh, who, would, who would do that? Well, it's a notable question because guess what? The Minoans do that. Their temples are built that way. Their buildings, they always have right inside the doorway a central pillar. And we have that feature here as well. So... Um, it's a, it was a pretty exciting thing to discover that because it makes it quite unique. Uh, it even has, we think, a light well associated with it. Well, here's what it looks like. This is Dr. Lane Rittenmeyer's cutaway drawing of what that gatehouse with its flanking towers looked like. And so it kind of starts to give you an idea as Lot sat in the gate. This is the gateway that he was sitting in, and he was probably sitting in that very gatehouse in the shade as people came in and out of the city doing whatever he did in the gate. And then here's a recent reconstruction drawing of what the city of Sodom may have looked like. We haven't excavated all of it yet, but we can extrapolate because we know where the residential areas are, we know where the temples are, we know where the palace is, and we know where most of the towers are. And this is a a really good uh, faithful rendition of it. Kind of gives you an idea. Um... Just throw in one little uh, exciting discovery. This is one of the most exciting things for me. It's just a little tiny thing. It's, it's three or four plates of scale armor wrapped in a tunic from the city of Sodom from the time of Abraham. This is a piece of the cloth that you can see. Um, cloth preserved from the time of Abraham from the city of Sodom. It's amazing. It's just a little tiny thing. But these are the kinds of things that that can get an archaeologist excited. We can actually uh, tell that it's probably uh, made out of linen. It's not wool. It's linen. Um, Just a couple of pictures here while we're at it. Um, from Not from this past season, but from the season before. You can see what it looks like on an average dig day. And I hope that you, some of you, will go with us this coming uh, late winter, late January through early March. You can take one week or two or three or four, whatever you like. Come and dig with us. And if you want to know how to do that, say, oh, I'm too old to dig. So am I. Right? In fact, um, our photographer now has just turned, I think he just turned 84 this year. He started in his younger years and is still going strong, going up and down those hills, taking all the photographs. Um, 
If you can walk a mile on uneven ground successfully, then you can be a good volunteer digger at the Tal Hamam Excavation Project. We would love to have you. And if you want to find out about how to do that, just give me a, give me a call. Come see me afterward or call me at 33 Bible, and uh, we'll be glad to talk to you, uh, tell you how you can do that. Um, this is what it looks like when you get to a final photograph and everything that you've excavated over the last six or eight weeks is all spit shine polished, cleaned up, swept, all looking good. And then you take these photographs. And, of course, here we have uh, a whole lot of different layers represented from different periods. Um, now, just quickly, I want to bring some of you who haven't heard uh of the destruction of Sodom, evidence that we've found. I wanted to bring you up to speed on that. Um, In this particular area where Tal Hamam is located, there are no late Bronze Age sites. What that means is is that during the Middle Bronze Age, in the time of Abraham, all of these cities in this civilization came to a screeching, sudden halt and did not continue... They completely died out for the next seven centuries. It's really unusual because, remember, this is the best watered agricultural land in the region. They just died, were wiped out suddenly, and then nobody lived there for a good long time, or at least there were no cities and towns in the area. People still had to cross the area and use it because of the trade routes. But um, in this area, it's interesting. There are just zero sites from the next period. Now, you have to ask a a question based on some facts, and the two facts are that Bronze Age civilization thrived for 2,500 years with Sodom or Tal Hamam as its center, but this Bronze Age civilization came to a screeching uh, uh, termination about the end of the Middle Bronze Age, and it remained unoccupied for seven centuries. Why did this happen? What happened? Why did this occur? You have to ask the question. And the Bible gives us the answer to the question. Now, it's very difficult for scholars to dive into that. But the fact is that the archaeology absolutely confirms what the Bible describes. So you can't just pass it off. Um, Digging down in the very early seasons, we found a massive stratum from the time of Abraham that's massive ash layer. Dark, stinky ash from the destruction of the city. In this air, in this place, it was about a meter or a meter and a half thick, laying over what was left of the foundations of the buildings that had been destroyed. So um, it was ugly stuff. And down at the bottom of a similar, in the same stratum, down at the bottom of another trench. We found this little one, and um, by the way, if you come to the Museum of Archaeology and Biblical History at Trinity Southwest University, that museum will be opening soon, and we'll keep you posted on that. This and other pieces of this kind of material are on display in the museum. But you can see uh, that this particular piece of a storage jar has um, some similar similarities to this other material to the right, carbon separation, 
calcium separation from the silica at a very high heat. What's interesting is that the stuff on the left is a Middle Bronze Age pottery shirt from Sodom. The stuff on the right is Trinitite from ground zero of the first atomic bomb explosion. So they're, they're the same kind of material produced in the same manner. And uh, it, it's pretty stunning to see that. This is desert glass formed by impact, meteoritic impact, uh, just about four kilometers between Tal Hammam and the Dead Sea. And we now know from uh, uh, Dr. Phil Sylvia's research with uh, seven other university um, labs and uh, scientists working with us that the city was literally blown off its foundations. Here are some, uh, here's some bone scatter human bone scatter in the uh, in the ash remains we also find lots of other stuff too beads uh, children's toys um, look at that beautiful uh, vase bowl piriform juglet all this stuff from the middle bronze age pieces of bronze jewelry a beautiful hyksos scarab a personal seal um, a Bronze Age jar and prodigious quantities of this black ash that overspread the entire destruction layer. But we now know something really interesting happened. We call it the 3.7 KYRBP Kikar event. That is, a meteoritic object came out of the southwest, and we now know, uh, we think we know the direction, came out of the southwest and obliterated 500 square kilometers, that is, the Kikar of the Jordan. And um, here it is. Now, what's interesting is in that part of the city, there's almost no mud brick adhering to the stone foundations. It's blown, literally the city has been blown off its foundations. If you look... Behind this 100-foot-high rampart for the upper city, this huge mud-brick berm that's about 50 meters thick at the base, you find lots of mud-brick, 10, 20 courses on top of the foundations, up to the top of the rampart, so that the blast came up over the rampart, blew the tops of the buildings off, especially the palace, which is probably three stories tall at least, blew it off, literally sheared it off, and it was it's amazing. And um, so we find it, that the direction was in this southwest to northeast direction. Now, something else tells us that. Look at this. And you say, oh, it's a picture of a big rock. <laughs> you see that little grinder next to it, like a little stone bowl? Well, it's not little. It's about this big. It's about as big as a watermelon. That grinding stone that you see there, this guy, is over a meter long. It weighs over 400 pounds. And you see this nice surface? You know what a matate is? Seen the grinders around here? Yeah. This is a big, giant matate. It's called a saddle kern. And there's the surface on the side. The surface, the grinding surface, is like this. That stone was on a little pedestal made of mud brick. And you'll never guess which way it was turned over from the southwest to the northeast. It was literally turned over and spilling off the top of it. 
is the carbonized grain that was being ground at the time it was just, it was turned over. So here we find, and all the pottery on this floor was strewn from southwest to northeast. It's really quite amazing. Um, so it came in like this. Boom. Ooh, that was fun. Let's do that again. Let's bring it in from the southwest. Here it comes. At low altitude, it comes in very shallow and explodes and completely destroys the cities of the Kikar. Now, switch the subject just a tiny bit. What happens when you ignore the biblical text? In this particular case of the Kikar geography, good things do not happen geographically when you ignore the Bible. Let me show you. I'm going to show you some pages from the number one Bible, historical Bible atlas on the planet. It's a really good one. It's very scholarly. It's really the only scholarly Bible atlas that, that you could get away with by quoting in, a, in an article, a scholarly article or, or a dissertation. This is the, and he has, a, he has a map of the Holy Land in the various archaeological periods. Well, here, here's one from the Chalcolithic period. This is the Copper Stone Age, uh, the time right before the Bronze Age. But look at this. The whole area in the Kikar, the northeast of the Dead Sea, where we're working is blank. It's blank. Look at this one. This is the early Bronze Age site map. It's also blank. It's blank. Look at this one. Here's the intermediate. Except for Iktanu, it's blank. By the way, Tal Hammam is now known in the scholarly world as the largest intermediate Bronze Age city in the southern Levant. We're the biggest. There's nobody else. I guess why we're the biggest. <laughs> there isn't another one. They all went out of business. Tal Hammam is thriving. All of its satellites are thriving. Iktanu, this other little city nearby, is just one of our satellites. But yet the information of the archaeologist hasn't, uh, of the archaeologists that produced this, hasn't gotten them to the point where they've put it on their maps yet. Look at this Bronze Age site map. It's completely blank. Now, when you ignore the Bible, this is what you get. Because look at the actual uh, uh, area northeast of the Dead Sea. You have lots and lots and lots of places most of the, many of these have been excavated. We've excavated Tal Hammam, Kefrain, Nimrin. Others have been excavated. People don't pay, pay attention to it because it's not part of their narrative. They haven't incorporated the biblical story of Sodom and these events into their narrative because they don't believe they ever existed. The blind leading the blind. So, uh, this is being corrected. By the way... Um, People often ask us, how is the Tal Hammam Sodom excavation project being treated in the scholarly community at large? Well, the last three years, I've been invited, invited, I didn't have to put in to read a paper and get accepted or rejected. I was invited to present about Tal El Hammam uh, at three of the major conferences, world conferences, this last, um, just a few months ago in April. I'd been invited and, and went uh, to present in the Jordan Valley section of the Calcolithic to EB1 
um, section of that conference. It was the International Congress on the Archaeology of the Ancient Near East. And I was invited to present. So how are scholars treating it? Well, very, very well from an archaeological point of view because they're really going to look ignorant if they don't include it because it's so very important. So now we're being routinely asked to participate in these presentations and conferences about Tal Hammam. And why, by the way, while I was in Vienna, we were having this, um, this dinner a reception uh, at the at palace of the, of the governor, uh, the mayor of Vienna. And one of the archaeologists who actually works in the region was, was not in my session, but she, she actually came over and she said, how, she said, Steve, you lucky dog, you have such a great sight. How did you find Tal el Hammam? <laughs> and she proceeded to get an earful of Genesis chapter 13. Um, and she just smiled and walked away. But... They're, but they're starting to find out you can't ignore the Bible and get away with it. You have to pay attention to the text. All right. So I start goading them with things like this. If in the past archaeologists and Bible scholars had taken the Sodom tales seriously, they would have discovered the civilization in the land of the Kikar a long time ago. But they didn't and they didn't. Right? But we did and we did. We just followed the text. It was as simple as that. Let me just, in, in, as we start to wrap this up, show you a few things from this past season. Working away, you see our folks, this, this great jar, it's about this tall. And uh, it was terrific, but completely empty. It didn't even fill in with dirt, and it had no lid. But when we unearthed it, it was completely empty. You could stick your arm all the way down in there. Don't know why, don't know how that happens. I've never seen that happen before, but... There it is, beautiful jar. This, these were our folks uh, digging this year. And this was a spectacular find because this ne- hardly ever happens. This is a, well, there's, there was a third jar. It's already been taken out. You see a gufa on the right there. These are three large storage jars packed with grain, carbonized barley. And uh, let's blow it up and look at it. This is 3,500-year-old carbonized barley. It's amazing. Now, that's from a special place. I'm going to spend the last three minutes doing this. Because we discovered something in the last two seasons that just floored me. Just floored me. I didn't see it coming. Wasn't looking for it. But it hit us like, uh, like a ton of bricks. Moses and the Israelites... In the Bible, when they got to this location, it's called the Plains of Moab, they camped from Beit Yeshemoth to Abel Shatim. And here's the passage real quick. Moses the Israelites camped on the Plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. There on the Plains of Moab, they camped along the Jordan from Beit Yeshemoth to Abel Shatim. Now scholars have already identified our site, Tal Hamam, as the area of Abel Shatim. What that means is the place of mourning a a catastrophe. Abel means the place of mourning a catastrophe where there are shatim, acacia trees. Okay. Now, 
we're already that. But this other thing is interesting. What is Beit Yeshimot? Beit Yeshimot means house of the desolation or the destruction. House of the desolation or destruction. Now, I never even thought about this before. I thought, oh, it's just kind of a place, kind of a geographical place because Sodom was destroyed and there's nobody living there when Moses gets there. It's just a blank plain. That's why they don't have to fight anybody. They just pull up all the Israelites and camp there and they just wait to cross the river. But Moses, being a general, would have noticed that on the top of Talal Hamam, former Sodom, on the top, there had been built a little house now here's Abel Shatim, and there's Jericho across the river, by the way. Moses' command encampment would be on the top of that uh, site because of its uh, 360 views, and the Levitical encampment would be around it, and the Israelites then would just camp wherever they could. Now, it looks like this. That's uh, Moses' command camp, the lower city, the, uh, the, the Levitical camp, the tabernacle in yellow, and uh, the Israelites camped all around it. It's a perfect setup. But what's interesting is, is Beit Yeshemot. Now look at this. We discovered on the top of Talel Hamam a single, isolated, freestanding building from the time of Moses and Joshua. It was a ter- it was a tariff house. I'll show you in a minute why we know it was a tariff house. But it's just about a few meters by a few meters. It's overly built. It's got huge beams. It's a government thing. This is not a house. This is, this is a government building for collecting taxes from the people who are coursing through the area. And guess what? Let me just show you here. There it is, right there on top. Here it is, right, pile, right on the top of the pile of the ruins. That yellow represents that house, the fallen down Look at this huge beam, 30 centimeters in diameter. And there's a carbonized chair laying on the floor. Here's what I think. I think Moses would have co-opted this particular house when he came there. Why not? You wouldn't have destroyed it. You would have used it and then destroyed it on the way out. I have a sneaking suspicion that Moses used this furniture. This is a leg of a chair carbonized on the floor. There were other things. There were also balance scale pans made of bronze, so they were enacting business and some scale, some weights. I really think that Moses very well could have co-opted and used this particular house for the several months or a year or so until they crossed over the river. And on a table... Seated in this chair, one of the other chairs that were carbonized on this floor, Moses completed the book of Deuteronomy. Now talk about goosebumps when you look at something like that and you go, it sounds like, it sounds so far-fetched, but the archaeology and the logic and the geography, it all just works so perfectly that it was so very exciting. So that's just another little thing that's going on. The house of the desolation. By the way, if you built a tariff house on the top of a pile of ruins, might you call it the house of the desolation? So maybe the house of the desolation really was a literal house after all. It accords with, it matches the Bible exactly. So that was very exciting. Well, we could go on and on and on until midnight, but we're out of time. We're going to get the band out here to dismiss everybody. But listen, 
The Bible works, not only for your own personal life, it works in archaeology, it works everywhere you apply it, trust it, follow it. God bless you all. What binds us together is devotion to worshiping our Heavenly Father, dedication to studying His Word, and determination to proclaim our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.